Welcome back to another episode of Employment Law Problems, where I, your host, Brett Hollebeck, discuss some of the most pressing labor and employment issues facing businesses and HR managers in the country today. And in this episode, I'm going to be discussing how to respond to an EEOC charge. So if you've been in HR for a while, you've probably dealt with EEOC charges. I'm going to go through some of the basics of what happens when you first receive a charge of discrimination, what do you do when you're investigating the discrimination claims, and how to um, write the statement of position and conclude the EEOC charge, and what follows after the EEOC charge is concluded. And with that, we're going to go on to the first part of this episode. And welcome back to the next part of this episode. And as I said before, we'll be talking about responding to an EEOC charge. So before I really get into the weeds of this podcast, I need to talk a little about what that means. First, I'm using some acronyms here. What is the EEOC? And the EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is responsible for enforcing many of the discrimination laws in this country. So they're responsible for for enforcing Title VII, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, and other discrimination laws. So the main way that companies and employers come into contact with the EUC is that an employee files a charge against the employer. They file an EEOC charge. Now, you can also file it, for example, with the local state entity. So in Texas, someone may file with the Texas Workforce Commission. And because the EEOC and the Texas Workforce Commission have a sharing agreement, basically what happens is that the EEOC and the TDC will share information about the charge. All right, so like I said, this is all about responding to an EEOC charge, or it could be you know, responding to one of the state-level charges as well that could be very similar. The very first step is, like I said, an employee will file an EEOC charge against a company. So an employee will go to the EEOC website. They'll submit a charge with the information regarding their allegations. They'll, they'll check what, what laws, what um, not laws, but they'll check what protected characteristic they believe they've been discriminated against for. So that may be, you know, their age, their race, their color, their religion, their sex, their national origin, their disability, their genetic information. So it's going to be protected characteristic that the EUC is going to investigate in some facts. Once they file that charge, the very next step is that the EUC is going to con they're going to they might meet with the, the EUC. They may you know, provide some additional information. Sometimes charges aren't the employee, you know, may have an attorney, but the employee may not have an attorney at this point. So they may just be submitting information to the EUC without any attorney helping them out. So sometimes it may be difficult for the EUC to gather what's going on, but most of the time, the next step is going to be for the EUC then to send the charge and the information about the charge to the employer. So the employer is going to become aware that there's been an allegation of discrimination against them. And so that's what I really want to talk about. When you have an EEOC charge, you've been you know, given an EEOC charge, what's your next step? What do you do? Well, obviously, 
it depends on where where that situation is. So with many companies, many companies have reporting systems, they have complaint systems, and employees may make an allegation to the company and give the company a chance to investigate those claims. So that could be that the company is investigating, you know, a claim of, let's say, just for example, you know, sex discrimination. So the company is investigating a sex discrimination claim. Maybe they're alleging that female employees are paid or that particular female employees paid less than her, her peers who are male. And so you may have had an allegation like that. An employee may have already, you know, complained or an employee may not have complained. So the starting point when you receive the charge is going to differ based on those facts, based on those circumstances. If you already have gotten an EEOC, if you've already gotten the complaint from the employee, you've conducted an investigation, you've talked to maybe her manager or whoever's responsible for setting the pay scales, and you concluded that there was no validity to the discrimination charge, maybe as an example, you have a step system and it's based on seniority and it's based on the type of work that they're doing. And each employee is paid based on the step and the type of work. So there might be a, for example, material handler one, who's responsible for certain duties, material handler two, and a material handler three. And if you're looking at an apples to oranges comparison, a material handler one and a material handler two, and there's some kind of differential, let's say material handler two works in a different area of the plant, they have different responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. That may be a difference. Another common difference may be that somebody works the night shift. Night shift people often get higher wages than day shift people because it's not popular. It's not a popular time to work. Most people don't want to do that. So you want to look back at the record that you may have. If you already have gotten a complaint from the employee, see you know who made the allegations, what level you investigated the allegations, look at the investigation report, look at any information you have, basically any notes you took, any witness interview notes, anything like that. You know, so that can be a lot easier, but let's start at kind of ground zero. So you've never have gotten any complaints from this employee about this allegation. This is the very first time you've heard about these complaints. What do you do? Where do you go from here? Well, you know, there's some things to think about here. So you're going to need to figure out what's going on. So that employee, the ver that charge, that discrimination charge is a very useful tool. The discrimination charge is going to tell you names, potentially. If it gives you names, maybe it's a supervisor, maybe it's a fellow employee, you're going to have a starting point. So you're not really going to be able to interview the, the person that made the discrimination claim. But you can talk to those other people that have um, are named. So if it's a manager that you know they're complaining against for maybe it's some form of discrimination again based on their sex, pay differential, different treatment, whatever it might be, you can go and you can talk to the manager and see what their side of the story is. If there are other individuals, you know, employees, you can talk to them as well but you're going to need to kind of conduct that investigation as you go to determine what happened. So 
again, it can be really, really difficult to to get all the facts. Sometimes employees may not know the names of those individuals, and you may have to do some legwork and, and talk to you know, the employee supervisor and other employees that they work with to find out. But typically from that EEOC charge, you're going to get, like I said, what law was violated, Age Discrimination Act, Americans with Disabilities Act, who is alleged to have been involved. And again, sometimes you're not going to get the full name. Sometimes you may get a first name. Sometimes you may get my supervisor, a supervisor. You might not get all the information you need. But you're also going to get things like when did the alleged action occur? So that can be a very important tool. Some allegations may be barred by the statute of limitations. So the employee may not have brought those allegations in enough time. That's something you want to consider. Now, there can be continuing violations where an employee can, um, can basically keep that charge alive. But that's something you want to look at. If these actions occurred five years ago and it was a single action and nothing's happened since, that's going to be outside the statute of limitations. Are there any documents mentioned? Sometimes an employee will mention documents. They'll mention their write-ups. They'll mention their performance evaluations that they say are golden and were never, they were a stellar employee. You can go and you can look at their employment records, their performance evaluations, and see whether or not that employee was actually a stellar employee. Again, I, I mentioned you might want to see if the employer had a record of the unlawful conduct. And if they do have a record, if you do have a record of the unlawful conduct, you want to see how that how you resolve that conflict, how you resolve that conduct. You want to also make sure you send a preservation notice because you're no longer going to be able to, you should maintain all your documents. You shouldn't destroy anything. So you want to send a preservation notice, letting, letting everyone know that, you know, these documents, you can't destroy them. Everyone needs to keep their messages, keep their emails. You're going to need to let everybody know that may have relevant records to retain those records. It's something you want to do right away. And you're going to want to start having somebody review those records to see what's relevant. Is there something in there that's important? You're going to need to make an, a decision whether to hire outside counsel, use your inside counsel, or you know, conduct the investigation through HR and have HR submit you know your statement or whatever it might be. But you want to begin the investigation as quickly as possible, uh, so that you can determine the allegations in a timely manner. Because the EEOC is going to investigate the charge as well. And they may, during the course of the investigation, they may request documents from the company. So the, the EEOC could potentially, you know, after typically after you submit a statement of position, which I'm going to get to in a second, the EEOC may request documents from the company. They may want to speak to witnesses. They might want to come on site. They might want to copy your handbook, the employee's personnel file. Basically, you need to understand, and your management management should especially understand, that the EEOC may come and talk with them about the allegations before them. So it's it's important that you know, oftentimes your outside counsel or inside counsel may meet with these people to ensure that they're ready in case there's a requirement to speak with somebody from the EEOC. And as I mentioned, the EOC is going to want a position statement. They're going to want basically the company's perspective on what happened. What's your response to these allegations of you know, discrimination on the basis of sex, where you're paying employees a different amount based on their sex? Uh, you're treating employees differently based on their sex. 
And the EEOC on their website has done a great job of outlining how to draft a position statement. First, again, look at the charge. You don't want to miss anything. Make sure you address each allegation, each discriminatory act in your position statement. And you want to provide copies of documents that support your statement of position, your, your position on those events, your version of events. So if you've got witness notes, if you've got an investigation report, if you've got a disciplinary notice is pretty common where you may have a disciplinary notice if someone's challenging their termination and you know the disciplinary history, you're going to want to use those documents to support your arguments within your statement of position. Now, typically in your statement of position, you're going to also provide a description of the organization. You're going to include the organization's legal name, address, name, address, telephone number, titles of the persons responsible for responding to the charge, the primary nature of the business, the number of employees. A lot of these statutes, if you have less than 15 employees, the law does not apply to you now depending on what state you're in, the state may have a lower threshold. So in some states, it may just be one employer, two employees, or five employees for some of these laws where most of the laws are 15 employees at the federal level. So you want to maybe use a staffing chart as well to help you understand who's in the organization, basically, and who do you have to, um, to count for that to get to that number. Once you're past the number, it doesn't matter. But you want to see if you have the right amount of employees. If you have less, you might luck out and the charges may not stick because you're not going to, the law may not apply to you. You want to also provide any applicable practices, policies, or procedures to the allegations in the charge. Typically, these will be things like the equal um, employment statement within your handbook, a non harassment statement in your handbook, a complaint, uh, complaint reporting procedure in your handbook. It'll be basically those sorts of items within your employee handbook and maybe some other policies as well. You want to maybe identify individuals that have been similarly affected by these practices, policies, or procedures and describe the circumstances in which they've been applied. And what that means is, is that sometimes employees will allege in their statement of position that I violated this provision. But another employee at my work violated the same precision and they weren't terminated. I was terminated and they weren't. Well, maybe that other employee has never gotten any disciplinary notices. And this was their first one. And the employee that was terminated that's filing discrimination charge has had five disciplinary notices in the last, you know, the year or maybe a year and a half, whatever you want to, whatever you know, term you're using. And two months ago, they were given a last, basically a last chance warning, a final warning that the next time they make a mistake, you know, within the next six months, they will be terminated. Well, you're going to treat those employees differently. The employee that's never had any allegations against them, it may make sense that they're not they're not terminated. Whereas the other employee is, is going to be terminated, and justifiably so. Explain and I already mentioned this, while individuals that were in a similar situation to the charging party were not similarly affected, identify officials who made the decisions or took action relating to the matters in the charge. you got to name those individuals typically so that the EOC will potentially investigate that further and maybe even speak with them. 
Be specific about the dates, actions, and locations in the case. The dates, actions, and locations. You're going to want to provide any internal investigations of the alleged incidents or grievance hearing reports. And you have an opportunity to inform the EUC um, that you want to use mediation. Or maybe see if you're able to mediate the case or read some kind of settlement with the EUC investigator. Oftentimes, the EUC will allow you to mediate, and basically the EUC will serve as a mediator. And what that means is that the EUC will work with you and the charging party to come with some number both the both the company and the individual are comfortable with and resolve the charge so the charge won't go any further and there the EUC has a great explanation of why a lot of people do this number one it's free there's no charge it's confidential you're not going to share this information with anyone the EUC is not going to share with anyone it can save you time and money um, oftentimes, investigating, defending, and potentially responding to information for an EOC charge is going to be more expensive than just mediating the case and settling the case. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone wants to do that. A lot of times, some, some plaintiffs may catch on that there's an easy target to always settle any litigation against it. And so companies that have a lot of charges that are not true may decide that they don't want to do that anymore and they only want to mediate the charges that they feel have either some merit or it makes financial sense to do so or someone's not abusing the system. So, you know, like I said, the, the typical path of an EUC charge is that the company will receive the charge, they will investigate the charge if it's the first time they've heard about the invest the allegations, or they'll look back at their old allegations then they'll file a statement of position. We talked a little bit about how to file a statement of position. You're going to put forth your best facts, arguing why the allegations are not true. And then the EEOC often offers a chance to mediate, which you can do you know, at any point in the process before the charge basically is resolved. And there's some benefits to doing that. You know, If you don't mediate the case, what will happen is the EEOC will make a determination and the They'll issue basically what's called a right to sue letter, typically. Um, and that employee will then be able to sue the company in court for the allegations that they've made. Uh, but it's very important that you do your best to present a good statement of position that outlines the facts very well. Because oftentimes, this is your chance to tell your side of the story at the very beginning. And it can set a tone to make mediation and settlement easier than a bad position statement. A bad position statement may put you in a bit of a bind to make a settlement. And of course, it also may make it easier for the employee to decide to continue the lawsuit. So these are some of the, you know, the basic tips to responding to an EEOC investigation, responding to an EEOC charge. Again, most employers are going to get discrimination charges filed against them at some point, or at least a, a large percentage will. Um, it's important that if you're in HR, that you understand how the process works. And the biggest thing is to act in a quick manner because you have a time limit to respond to the EUC. And while you can request an extension, you want to be ahead of the game and working with your attorney or working with in-house counsel to request those, those extensions and present good evidence and reasons why 
so that you can have sufficient time to respond to the allegations in the charge. And with that, we're going to round out this episode. I hope you learned a thing or two about responding to an EEOC charge. As always, I look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. And that concludes another episode of Employment Law Problems. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot in this episode. I hope you learned a little bit more about how to respond to an EEOC charge if you have not done so. And if you responded to EEOC charges in the past, I hope that this episode was informative. And with that, I'll catch you in the next episode.